You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 9. I'm Alex Escher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. One of the biggest events of the last two decades in global higher education was the wave of student protests that hit Chile in 2011 and lasted for well over a year. They were not the most coherent of protests. The range of issues discussed included financing of higher education, quality of higher education, governance of higher education, admission systems in higher education. And of course, mass protests inevitably brought out others with unrelated grievances against the government of Sebastian Pinera as well. One of the consequences of those protests was the return to power of the Socialist Party of Chile's Michelle Bachelet in December of 2013, just 10 years ago next month. One of her key re-election policies was gratuidad, that is free tuition, to be funded by a significant tax hike on natural resources. But another big change, less clear at the time, was the rise to prominence from the student movement of an entire generation of political leaders, including the current president, Gabriel Boric, and a slew of current ministers, including most notably the Communist Party of Chile's Camilla Vallejo, who was perhaps the movement's most recognizable leader. Joining me today to review how all this has played out over the last decade is Paula Klausing Manquian, a postdoctoral researcher in education from Chile's Nucleo Milenio de Educación Superior. We take a look back at the past dozen years and how the politics of higher education in Chile have changed. We look at the rise of individuals such as Boric, Vallejo, and Giorgio Jackson, maybe one of the most youthful ruling triumvirates in the world. But we also look at the compromises that were required to bring gratuitad into existence and how this policy has become universally accepted across the political spectrum. Maybe the most disappointing news from Chile is the lack of any kind of serious impact evaluation of this new policy. Despite it costing hundreds of millions of pesos a year, hard to know at this point what difference the policy has made in terms of improving access. Has it made some difference? Probably. Would other methods have gotten Chile to the same place with less expense? As Paula tells us, it seems like we may never know. But enough for me. Here's Paula. Paula, can we start by painting a picture of Chilean higher education, tuition fees, student aid, all that kind of stuff from about 15 years ago? Say at the end of the first Bachelet administration in 2008-9. It seems like a pretty complicated system. I mean, in addition to having lots of both public and private institutions, there's separate systems of student aid for students in public and private. The government doesn't look at actual fees. It looks at reference fees to set student aid levels. It seems very complicated to an outsider. Was it? What was the system and how did it work? Yes, actually, it was very complicated. Maybe like to start, I can say that the Chilean system is composed of uh, a vocational um, sector and then the university sector. And the vocational sector is composed of two-year institutions and four-year institutions which were mainly private institutions, and some of them were for profit. Only in this sector, there were, was a profit. And then the university sector, which is composed of three kinds of institutions, the state institutions, some private but publicly subsidized institutions that receive direct funding from the state, which are also considered kind of public institutions, and then the private ones, which are the youngest ones. And the first one, the state universities plus the subsidized, private but subsidized universities are the oldest and most prestigious institutions in the country, and they conform 
which is called the Kruch institution, the, the ones that belong to a, a council of rectors. So that's kind of the overall system. And so financial aid for students, the system is financed mainly through fees, tuition fees. And there were, like at the beginning of 2010, there were financial aid as many countries have based on scholarships and loans. Scholarships have a merit component. All of them have a merit component and a need-based component. And loans, there were two kinds of loans. One, loans for the traditional universities, the, the state universities and private but public subsidized universities. Students in those can access one kind of loan, which has better ways of paying back when there were working students, have better, how you call that, like better ways of like interest rates were lower. And then the other one, the other loan was for the students in the other kind of institution. But one of the important issues is that the financial aid only covers a reference tuition, which is, could be between 80 to 100% of the real tuition or the sticker price. It was very complicated. It depends to which institutions you go, the ones that the financial aid you can access. So not so easy. Okay. So then we come to the regime of Sebastian Piñera starting in 2010. And one of the most important events during his presidency was a set of student protests, which lasted nearly two years. And these were in part spurred by a kind of a general critique of neoliberalism. I, in fact, if I recall correctly, they started because of uh, public transport or a privatization of public transportation routes. But they had some very specific demands in respect to tuition fees and access. What were the protesters' aim exactly? And what changes did they want? So, yeah, so student protests are very common in Chile. But these ones were very special because they were able to have the get support of the public opinion. And what they were aiming basically, or was having a free public higher education of quality. So that was the main aim of the student protest. And here um, it's important, I think, to know or to understand that when we say public, maybe in other parts of the world, public means like state universities, for example. But here in Chile, because we have this weird system where there are private institutions that have been publicly subsidized. Public is not equal to state universities. So that was, I think, one of the big issues in the policy about what's public. And there was big debates after. So, yeah, that, that was a big issue here to finally have a, introduce some complexity in the policy design. So more about quality than about fees, actually. Yes. So here there was also an issue about ratification of students by quality of the institution. So basically higher income students or students from higher uh, socioeconomic levels were going to institutions of higher quality, while students like from low socioeconomic status were going to institutions of lower quality. Also that student protests were focusing on that issue also ratification and they wanted to change the system. So improve the quality of the institution or that all students like went to these better, like higher quality institutions from the system. Now, as you said, these these protests were different. Like they were deep, and even if they didn't immediately achieve its aims with respect to higher education, they had a huge effect on national politics. It seems to me because some of the student federation leaders 
went on to very significant political careers, most notably, of course, the current president, Boric, and Vallejo, who is in the cabinet and acts as the government spokesperson. How did that happen? Yeah, so the, both of them were the leaders, and some other students also were student leaders on the protest. And they were able to articulate these demands in a way that resonated to the uh, public opinion. So they got the uh, support of the public opinion. And they were also were like very uh, like leaders in a way that people resonate with them. And first, so this protest started in 2011, 12, 13. And in 2014, Gabriel Boric and Camila Vallejos and others like Giorgio Jackson, for example, went to the, were elected as congressmen and congresswomen. And so they became like transition from student leaders to legislator now. And they also like kind of helped in a way to, to push the free tuition policy into the policy agenda. And then like later, Gabriel Boric, because of charismatic reasons, I think there was, he was able to like gain the support of his party and then was able to being elected as president yeah. today. So let's now go back now to 2014, and Piñera is gone temporarily. Michelle Bachelet has been reelected, partly on a promise of gratuidad, which was free tuition, which was supposed to be yes. paid for by generating new tax revenue that never quite materialized. So they had to make some compromises in that first year, and it turned out that gratuidad couldn't be for everyone, but only for those whose families are in the bottom six income deciles. If I recall correctly, there was some argument about whether it'd be five or six at the beginning. How was that received by student leaders? I mean, gratuidad, I, I would have thought from a student perspective, means gratuidad. And here it turns out that actually only a minority of students are, are going to get something free without free, not counting loans and, and grants. How did that play out when it was implemented? Well, yeah. So the first year of Bachelet administration, it became clear that it was, this policy was very uh, expensive for the country and the tax reform was not able to cover all these expenses in this, only this policy. So they kind of abandoned this idea. And then the, she promised like retuition for students in the seven deciles of mm -hmm. uh, income in the country. But later, like the first year, 2016, only was implemented for students in the first five income decimals. Of course, students were not happy. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, like it, students are always protesting here. And the movement, the student movement lost like this, uh, its power in all this year. And I would say that they were not, they didn't have much power to push that. And other actors became more uh, important in this period in the policy design, specifically. specifically higher education institutions become more important and were more present on the design and students, although they were not happy, they were not able to introduce their demands any longer from this original um, ideas. Interesting. We're just going to take a short break and we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? 
Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. I want to talk about two limitations on the universality of this program beyond family income, which we just discussed before the break. The first is that, in effect, the program is voluntary, right? Like institutions can choose not to participate. And my understanding is that, at least at the beginning, some private ones did choose to opt out. Is that still the case? What's been the trend in terms of institutional participation of, among private institutions? It's mandatory for state institutions and it's voluntary for private institutions. Now, it, it, the program begins with 30 universities. The first year was only for universities, and it began with 30 universities of the 60 universities in the country. And in the first year, of course, all state universities and all private but public subsidized universities were in the policy plus, I think, two or three private universities. And now there are um, about 66 universities and uh, vocational institutions in the policy, about 35 universities. And the rest is uh, vocational institution. About 65% of the enrollment are in this institution. So are students that are able mm -hmm. to opt for the tuition policy. So I think that so a first issue of the policy design was that it was clear that to have a real impact on the system, it could not be only in state universities, as we originally thought, like public uh, equal state, it was mm -hmm. not possible because the state universities only have about like 20% of the enrollment. So one, then the idea was to bring uh, these traditional universities, private and publicly subsidized universities to the policy that engage in the policy and that give legitimacy to the policy. And then they have like 30% of the enrollment, but these are the most prestigious institutions. So that give like, although they have not um, a lot of uh, involvement, they are the most prestigious ones. And that legitimates um, the policy. And also, also because the, even when the policy has some rules for institutions, for example, they have to accept a regulated tuition and enrollment capacity, the, the, the money incentive is, is big. So if you are in the policy, if students uh, are admitted to the institutions, their uh, tuition is paid by the state. So you will receive the money no matter what. You have not students that don't pay, for example, which was a big issue before. So it's kind of secure money. And I think that's a big incentive for private institutions who started this low-income student. There must be some reason why private, some private institutions stay out, right? So is, it, is the financial incentive just not big enough? Is it that they're paying less than the full tuition fee, like the reference fee in the old days? Why do some private institutions stay out? So there are, for universities, is that those that have a high tuition, which is very higher than the reference tuition, they have less incentives to be part of the policy. So this, like, now there are very few institutions, these elite institutions, private institutions, are the ones that are out of the policy, but most of the 
the other institutions are in the policy. And for the vocational sector, the thing is that only non-profit institutions can be part of the policy. So, and in this sector, it was, profit was allowed. So if right. they don't, they have to change their, change to be a non-profit to be part of the policy. And that, that, that's something that they, some of them don't want. Got it. The other limitation on the program is that there is a, a time cap, right? I, I believe you can only benefit for four years. Well, many students at least used to take six or seven years to graduate. How has that aspect of the program worked? I know in some places, this country or Canada say, if we did that, we would call it a big incentive for on-time completion. But have study times shortened thanks to Gatuidad? Has the subsidy actually worked that way? Short answer, we don't know yet. Oh, okay. I, I don't think that there are studies yet that have measured that, but the policy only covered the nominal duration of the program of study. So mm -hmm. if that is five years, it would cover five. It's two years, only two. Or for example, medicine here, it's seven years. It would cover the seven years. The problem is that almost like very few students finish in the nominal duration of the program. They take like in the nominal duration plus one or plus two years. The problem why they take longer, maybe it's because they're, the high school preparation to go mm -hmm. to university is not always the best. So students um, enter higher education with um, some lack of knowledge that uh, institutions have to kind of remedy or implement some, how you call this kind of course, like remedial courses. Yep. Yeah. So it could be an incentive if they have the preparation that would allow them to do the programs in five years. Yes, but for many students, that's not the case. They, they need a little bit more time to be ready to start these five years. Okay. So look, with all these restrictions, some around income and some around institutions, some around time, how many students actually receive gratuidad? Is it 20%? Is it 30% of students who get it? And what do we know about the effects that gratuidad has had on access to higher education in Chile? Like concretely, what have the benefits been? How can we, what can we say about expansion of opportunity? Yes. So about how many students received uh, free tuition this year or, or last year, it was about half a million students have free tuition. It's about a third of the students enrolled in higher education have this benefit. So it's kind of the biggest financial aid. I think I, I was, I think it's around from all the students that receive financial aid, about 70% have uh, the free tuition. So I did my, my doctoral dissertation on this topic about the impact of policy on access and persistence. And what I found is that it has not impact on access, but it has an impact on changing preference of students. So we have no more students in higher education because of the free tuition policy, but the policy was able to move students from institutions outside the policy to institutions in the policy. Interesting. Um, and because I know there was some uh, modeling very early on in this, I think it's uh, Alonso Bukhari from MIT suggested that one thing he suggested early on that there would be uh, movement of students between institutions, but he had a different take on it. And that was that it would compound the problem of stratification, that students from higher socioeconomic strata might cluster more heavily at the, the, the Kirsch institutions, the, the Council of Rectors institutions. Did that happen? Have we seen changes in terms of, of stratification? I think it's maybe too early to say because of the COVID 
2019 pandemic, so enrollments were not so easy to study this process because of the pandemic issues. So I don't think there are kind of any study that has been able to set for sure that, but so one of the requisites of the British policy for students that want to go to the university sector is that they have to uh, do it through the standardized system, which is composed of a standardized test and the high school GPA and ranking. And because also the tuition policy regulates the enrollment growth of institutions, I think that in the future it might be the case because the policy is, is moving students that were before in institutions outside the policy to these institutions inside the policy. So it's generating uh, more applications. So in the long run, if nothing changes, right. I think it would increase selectivity because yeah. universities would have to select. Yeah, no, because in the end, it's all about the spaces at the elite universities, right? That's If that's a fixed yeah. number, it's hard to, yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, there are no, no spaces and more applicants. Yeah. So although the fight over Gatuidad was quite ideologically intense, it survived the return of Sebastian Piñera to power in 2018. How did Chile's right accommodate itself to this policy? Did Piñera make any changes at all to the program in his second term? No. First, when he was um, a candidate, he thought of doing something. Then he said, no, I will stay with that. There were some ideas of expanding their retuition, but only in the vocational sector. At the end, they, they didn't do anything. I think because it's too costly, politically speaking, to mm -hmm. get rid of the retuition policy. It benefits like a third of the students are benefit because of well, the retuition policy right now. And that brings us to the current government, which is just filled with veterans from the protest of 2011. Uh, given that, I would have assumed that they would have had a much more activist higher education agenda, but it doesn't seem like they're doing much. Now, maybe I'm just missing it, and maybe much of it was tied up with the constitutional referenda of, I guess it was late 2022. What do you think? Like, what is going on right now with this government and higher education? Not much, really. One of the uh, promises of the presidential campaign was the forgiveness of the one of the the loans, the, the major loan that have a, a higher interest rate than the than the second loan. So there was this idea of forgiveness. There was some issues with a tax reform that the president wanted to make that didn't work. So with that, they don't have the money to do anything about that. So. It has not been a topic of discussion, really. But there are other things in the country going on that have taken focus of the policies right now. So then my last question to you, what do you think the future of the Gatuidad policy will be? I mean, it seems to me it's too firmly entrenched to dismantle, but at the same time, it's too expensive to expand. So is where we are now a kind of permanent equilibrium, do you think? I think so, yes. I think that... so. The policy has, it was enacted as a state law in 2018, and it has kind of some triggers that said if when the country has this kind of incomes due to taxes are X, then the next death will enter in the policy and, and so on. In, in practice, it was very difficult to reach those levels. So I don't think it will be 
adapting and expansion of the filtration policy in the future. Paula, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And it just remains for me to thank our show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please feel free to contact us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Please join us next week. My guest will be Isaac Fruman, who's head of the Observatory of Higher Education at Jacobs University in Bremen, Germany. We'll be talking about research universities in the nations of the ex-Soviet Union. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 